Well, boys, looks like you started the fun without me. You're all sick. Every last one of you. We're going to need a bigger gun. What's the matter? You scared of things that go boom? My name is Eric, and returning for another installment of The Journey is Michael Kester. That's right, I'm here. I'm going to talk about, uh, I'm going to talk a lot about Blackula today. I assume you're going to talk a lot about uh, Pola X today, but well, that's to be seen. That's to be found out. Spoiler, I am going to talk about okay, cool. Pola X. That may be the only spoiler of the day. Um, the evening, whatever time you're listening to, please be the evening. Don't listen to this during the day. When as tired as possible. Even our voices hate sunlight. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I want to I want to talk a lot about the setup and the arc, but not spoil the ultimate fate of any of the characters. Sure. I feel like that's what people kind of call spoilers. Well, listen, I'll tell you right now, I'm now three, uh, three episodes deep on this journey. I know the fate of the characters. I'm just going <laughs> to tell you. No, you don't. Um. <laughs> unless, hey, by the way, unless you got this on DVD off Netflix. Oh, is that now because that's our Netflix is back to our champion? Yeah. I know. Circle. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, Netflix is the bane of my existence. Streaming's ruined everything. It's destroying the film industry, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting here. I'm like, so if someone wants to get a DVD, if only there was a place they could just like order DVDs, like a like a service, they could just pay so much a month and like a library, they would get sent DVDs. But you know, any DVD, like a full catalog, <sighs> go to dvd.com, sign up, and you can just get whatever DVD you want and that'll help you. Mm-hmm. So thanks to Patrick Klein who pointed that out <laughs> Good. <laughs> several episodes in. But you know, a DVD costs what a fucking coffee does. Just uh, mm-hmm. You can sponsor a DVD for the price of your morning coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Find Polax if you can. We'll try not to spoil it. I know I've said sometimes the movies are hard to find. This one can be a little hard to find, but it is on DVD in the US. And, you know, like it's a deeply personal movie to me. There's nothing quite like it. And I just thought the journey would not be complete without it. And then Blackula, which is a movie about a, it's like Dracula, but he's black. <laughs> <laughs> like the nature of doing this journey with you this way is very funny because I'm a pretty long-winded person and you're yeah. just like you know Blackula like you want to watch Blackula right and I feel like I don't mean to sell your side short I just you know mine requires a lot of excuses and well that's listen man and padding around the part of part of my part of this journey uh for anybody who's who's this is their first journey episode Go back. We've done a couple more of these, but this is our year's journey of comparing exploitation films to, uh, well, to themselves, to a series of exploitation films, but also to a series of French extreme movies. Marijuana and Criminal Lovers, we should say, is where that started. So you can right. get that back earlier this year. But the nature of the nature of my half of this year's journey is that if the titles don't grab you, you've never seen it. They don't. It, the movie doesn't exist, man. Yeah. If the title didn't grab you from some exploitation movie, one, they either read, they probably retitled it. But two, that's 80% of the lifting. We covered this in Marijuana, a little less so in Wild Angels. But Blackula, I mean, I can't think of a title that is more like, yo, check it out. It's Blackula. All right. Well, listen, you can uh, check out this episode even if you haven't seen the movies. We just appreciate you coming with and hanging out with us for these because we are talking about some broad genres. Having said that, I will let you know up front, what doesn't grab me is the particular subgenre of exploitation we're doing today. That's right. Because <laughs> it is the, you know, you started this kind of to, to poke me with the stick on mm-hmm. different genres of exploitation and like why I'm suddenly uncomfortable with exploitation. Yep. And then we did a couple of these and I'm like, ah, well, sorry I ruined that half of the journey for you, but I really don't give a fuck. I'm f- I just like watching movies and nothing bothers me. Mm-hmm. And now we're at yeah. what is so frequently, so affectionately called black exploitation. Black exploitation. And you know, the other thing that that destroys me is like it's kind of one of my favorite subgenres of exploitation. A hundred percent. So it's yeah. like the best movies and the worst labeling of a it's the most it's the worst exploitation yeah yeah yeah. 
So with with Blackula too, I was actually really oh fuck, dude. Patreon.com forward slash double feature. What are we doing? Sure. What the fuck ever. Um, <laughs> there you go. With, with Blackula, I I was really particular because I wanted to do. I mean, you're right. Part of this journey for me was to try and to try and you know, it's like a you know when you get the um the allergy test and they poke you with like a hundred sticks or whatever. I don't know how it works. <laughs> and then one of them turns red and they're like, you're allergic to blackula. <laughs> so this is sort of a series of tests for me to, to get a read on which exploitation is, is where you're, where you're, where your discomfort lies. We're trying to find out where it hurts. That's what I'm trying to find out. In technology, we, we called that split halves. That's a diagnostic yeah. methodology. You there you go. Just keep splitting it up and find where the problem still exists. Yeah. And it turns out blackula. Yeah. Yeah. Where my discomfort so, still is. So I really, I knew I wanted to do block exploitation, and and to be fair, uh, it's probably one of the genres we've exhausted the most. Also true. So to find a block exploitation film that we hadn't covered that was also carried enough weight to necessitate being a pedestal for the genre wasn't easy. And then if you eliminate the ones that have the N word in the title. Uh, you're left with Blackula and Cleopatra Jones, uh-huh. <laughs> and um, and I, I the other thing there that, is a line somewhere is what yeah. we're also discovering. <laughs> the other thing that I um, the other thing that was really important to me is that I wanted to do a black exploitation movie with a black director, mm-hmm. and that's that's ultimately why I landed on Blackula because. One of the things with black exploitation that makes it really murky, and one of the things that even puts me in hot water if I'm trying to well actually my way out of a conversation, is is uh, is if it's if it's a movie like Coffee, where it's a sexualized black exploitation movie with a predominantly white crew and production team that's harder for me to justify. Whereas if you have a movie like Blackula, which actually has some merit as far as its production goes, right? So they, they, um, the titular character Blackula got to rewrite his character's origin story. He gave him, his name was supposed to be like Cletus Brown, <laughs> he gave himself a traditional African name. He gave himself like a royal background and a benevolent mission and all of these things. And then, you know, the movie uses um, one of the things that I think is actually the most surprising about Blackula is that it uses the black exploitation like soul soundtrack. Yeah, the music's really a big part of the movie, too. Not just the the soundtrack, which you're right, is the one thing that makes you go, oh, I'm still... Mm-hmm right in the thick of the genre, even though mm-hmm. this is also part of uh, another genre, vampires, or as they're less commonly known, sexy zombies, or your favorite <laughs> monster. Um, but yeah, they're, they're also like seeing music on stage, seeing performers, mm-hmm. and these kind of like extended, sure, you know, slightly longer music numbers. So a lot of that feels like part of the DNA. You could remove the fangs from this movie, and it's just a straight black exploitation movie. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's also really notable and odd. Just and normal maybe, sleeping in coffins, you know, that kind of. Whatever. Come on. We were all in high school. Blood tests and <laughs> the, morgues. The, and, the thing that, the other thing that black exploitation, uh, sorry, the other thing that Blackula created, probably unsurprisingly, is exploitation genres are just like, that made money. How do we make more money off of it? Is Blackula, in addition to spawning a sequel, also spun off um, the super niche double subgenre of black exploitation horror mockbusters. So Abby was, um, I, I, I believe we've talked about Abby, uh, you and I. I don't think it's ever made the conversation on the show, but that was Black Exorcist. There was, in fact, much to your behest, a movie called Blackenstein. Uh-huh. And they just did a lot of these, a lot of these. these. Not to be confused with Antonio Banderas Stein, which we covered earlier on a Pedro Almodovar <laughs> show. Um, it's it's definitely a... Uh, it's it's interesting to to see a movie like Blackula and go. This actually was the pioneer of the black exploitation horror yeah. subgenre, but it did incredibly well. It was a movie um, that black exploitation existed. Black exploitation horror was not in it was in it was non existent. You know, so black exploitation was really 
it, it's interesting because so here's let me make a quick case for black exploitation and why I think it's important. So first, let me just anybody who's not super familiar, black exploitation is this subgenre of exploitation whereby I'm just going to be honest, whereby white culture thought black culture was really, really intriguing, interesting, and thro- you know, it's like today, but we called it like it was. And that's why I think this is important. So black exploitation was like, black people are cool. I want to watch them, but I don't want to go to their neighborhood. And that was the foundation of black exploitation. Yeah. Black people were cooler than white people. They did cooler things. They spoke with like a cooler sort of vernacular. Their music was better. All of their style was better. All of this was the real foundation, right? Mm-hmm. And then white people went, well, then let's, uh, let's exploit that and make some money. But I th- the reason that I like black exploitation one is because eventually a lot of black filmmakers, um, famously Melvin Van Peebles, but to Blackula even um, the genre was sort of in some cases taken back by the black community, and I feel like that was cool. I think that's cool to like it puts black people in cinema. Mm. There's that whole uh, Shutter Dock um, horror noir that covers a lot of this too. But the reason I think it's so important is that it's really one of the only times in the progression of modern American culture. And, you know, it wasn't, I'm not saying like, hey, good job, white people, because it's absolutely not that. But like, at least it wasn't stealing stuff from black people in the same way. Like, you have Elvis, who just basically lifted his entire thing from the black community. And, you know, there's, there, there's this sort of thing in modern culture where every, literally every fucking subgenre of any piece of art grunge. I saw recent, all of this shit. It's like, well, you know, Kurt Cobain, but did you know grunge was actually founded by black sure, people? Sure. You know what I mean? I saw the same Kurt Cobain article. Right. actually. <laughs> um, and it's just like, it's sort of like this, as critical race theory becomes like a big part of the public conversation, there's sort of this, this reality where like a lot of what white people think many, many, many of the things that white culture believes is one of the things we actually started. Grunge music was a big one for me. I wouldn't have, yeah. but it's interesting because I think a lot of, um, a lot of modern culture is about, there's two ways to put it. Co-opting is probably the, um, the sort of like more negative way to put it. And the other one is uh, integration would be the, um, the, maybe the nicer way to put it. Yeah. Cause integration is always, uh... you know, America's a melting pot, man. <laughs> um, it's just essentially, you know, the foundations of white culture in, in America are based on the fact that America is a, a nation of immigrants and forced immigrants who are all here now and basically with white people at the top of the totem pole, we kind of went back and went, I like this from the Irish. I like this from the Chinese. I like this from the Latinos. We're going to take some of this from black people. We're going to say it's all ours, but look how great it is. Mm. And I think that with black exploitation, it's really one of the only times in the whole of this, you know, this conversation about co-opting black culture where white people just went, just watch black people. Like, let's not pretend white people did it. Yeah. It's interesting too the, the idea of an audience. I mean, these movies are really great conversation piece movies today because suddenly this entire genre takes on a sort of a tone in the conversation that I, I didn't even recognize growing up in Chicago watching exploitation films. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of a conversation about like, basically people are looking at the art piece and going, is this an immoral art piece in its creation? Which of course is a, it says more about the audience than really how it was created. Mm -hmm. You know, I we've talked about this a couple of times now, but I feel like these are movies that are part of history. You know, they are, um, they're historical artifacts. And once the movie is made and comes out in a cinema, it kind of gets, I mean, it's out of the artist's hands at that point. So a lot of these questions about when we get into the ethics of a thing that was made and who made it and is the artist a fuck and were people harmed while making the movie, 
you know, those questions are really interesting to me, but once the movie comes out and audiences go see it, and then it gets reprogrammed again 10 years later and reprogrammed again 10 years later, well, that's still a part of the conversation. I also look at the history of the the kind of appreciation of these movies in cinema. Mm-hmm. It was interesting to watch horror noir and see how much of the movies were sort of like, well, here's something kind of awful about how and why this was made, but also here's this audience member's take on why it was important to them growing up, even though it was, you know, like the making of the film was not, um, uh, I don't know, done ethically. I don't, I don't know what other way you'd put it. You know, you're talking about having a conversation and that's why I think these movies are important. I think that, you know, there are things that are really difficult. It's a tough pill to swallow. This is a tough part of cinematic history to swallow. It's a tough part of American culture, hist- cultural history to swallow. But what it isn't doing compared to all this other stuff is burying black culture. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you, you, so, so that's one part of the conversation, right? That's the black portion. Unfortunately, there's this whole exploitation aspect. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. You really start to win me over. And then I'm like, oh yeah, let's get back to the exploitation. Right. So, um, and that's, you know, that's Why don't the, you logline what we're exploiting here? All right. So um, a Nigerian prince who needs you to wire him $832. No. <laughs> A, a black prince goes to, I, I assume Transylvania. I think I've forgotten if it's, it's Transylvania. Yeah. Okay. Of course. Goes to Transylvania and attempts to stop the slave trade. And in response for his, uh, his, his insolence, he's turned into the first black vampire and banished to the cellar until some HGTV gay guys resurrect him and he's alive in modern day society searching for the reincarnation of his dead wife. Yeah, the way the movie just starts, it's like it cut out the first hour of the film. <laughs> he just sits down for the scene, you know, it's like straight out of the Keanu Reeves, Gary Oldman, Dracula. You know, you really <laughs> feel like you're in the same spot. It's like, oh, we're getting to that part of the movie uh, mm-hmm. pretty quick. But yeah, I also think you you mentioned something interesting about the film and these HGTV guys because there is a lot of passing off the racism of the era onto homophobia instead. Mm-hmm. As if it's a more palatable intolerance for whatever reason. I mean, at the time it probably was. Yeah, well, look, I'm not a historian, so it's hard for me to to say on a lot of this. But I did find that really interesting watching it and seeing like, oh, well, here's a lot of this stuff it did as a black exploitation film that's different. And then watching the cops, like you kind of have a lot of the um, the cop tropes from the time, mm-hmm. including, you know, like black police detective. It's really curious to me that that was a trope specifically. Mm-hmm. But the cops are still fucks because they're mm-hmm. still going around like just making fun of gay people everywhere they can, or just accusing right. people of being gay because they, they're doing something wrong or they don't like them. Well, I mean, it's definitely, I, I definitely wouldn't say that there is any point in the entire backlog of exploitation that is purely moral or fully on the right side of history. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it really isn't, but it's also interesting to look at the movies and see like where, when you're talking about documents of twisted morality Mm -hmm. to look at something like this and see like, okay, so everybody in the movie knew that they had to do a cop movie, Mm -hmm. a sort of like, it's not police procedural, but it's a lot of the movies we got in that decade, which are sort of the cops hunting down a Mm so-and-so, but that the cops are very much fucks. Right. And that that does not escape the movie. And so in a weird way, it kind of allows them to do both things, like have these hero cop protagonists, but then also just show the sort of like latent intolerance of the police. And I think that that comes down to what we always, what we talk about every, every time we do one of these journey episodes, which is that the, the, you know, with exploitation movies, you know, primary focus of exploitation movies is sell tickets. Mm please your audience, right? For as cheaply as possible. 
And if you don't have production value, what you learn watching a movie like Blackula is what what the um what is it the Maya principle, the most advanced yet acceptable prejudices that a society has. Mm-hmm. So by the time you're watching Blackula, this is 1963. What this sample can kind of tell you is that largely American audiences were coming around to being okay with at least some black people, affluent ones, but that the general audience could rally around cops being shitty and gay people being outsiders. And that's like the other thing you learn watching these snapshots of exploitation is you learn so much about the audience because these aren't, these movies for you and I and in, in 2021, these are niche movies, right? You don't mm. go back to revisit Black Hill. That's not, it's not even a repertory movie half the time in theaters. It's not Rocky Horror. Yeah, less than one in two repertory films are Black Hill. That's a fact. <laughs> That's a cinema fact. Write that down. But it's, uh, it's interesting because at the time this had to make, and it did make, a ton of money. So it couldn't turn people off. It couldn't do anything risky. You know, we talked about the Wild Angels in the last show, and that's Roger Corman. Roger Corman, this was before Roger Corman's big flop where he like reassessed how he was going to please his audiences. So he was willing to take risks with trying to push his liberal agenda. I don't see Blackula being that movie, but it's also important to notice that this was a black director. It was a lot of black people involved in the making of this film. So that also means that that community is definitely influential for maybe the way that cops appear. And let's be honest, probably the way that gay people are portrayed because that's very much a part of that society, especially in the sixties is like black men. Think of hip hop culture, right? You couldn't have a Lil Nas X in 1990. Yeah. It took fucking 31 years for Lil Nas X to fuck Satan to death. (laughs) Right. Right. But here we are in, in perfect, and that's a really great segue if you want to just jump to bullets. <laughs> Fuck Satan to death. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, here goes here is nothing, I suppose. Yeah, well, today I thought we'd talk about the, the incidental part of the movement with the French extreme and really the directors. Okay. You know, we've been discussing the many films all within, you know, a three-year period that were later considered the foundation of, of French New Extremity. In the U.S., we often see these blockbusters where, you know, studios catch wind of what each other are doing, right? Mm-hmm. And then over the years, they develop their own versions. Mm-hmm. This happens in over many years, but it also happens, you know... In The Raid and Judge Dredd. Yeah, I mean, we could name <laughs> a ton of these, right? These kind of like two obvious things that sort of... Um, uh, the ants and bugs life kind of mm-hmm, back and mm-hmm. forth. But this is independent cinema, these French extreme movies. And there's a vast number of them all coming out. Everything we've been talking about is this little three-year period. So it's not like these are behemoths being developed over many years and they're getting wind of each other and that's what's creating this genre. So I wanted to get even more specific now and make the case that... The New French Extremity wasn't what we, what we often see in even horror movements or trends. We've talked about so many of them over the course of the show, but it's, you know, even on these, uh, these episodes, we talked about the Splat Pack. Mm-hmm. Whether it's, I don't know, handheld and found footage, uh, what's more, something like desktop horror, right? We have like Unfriended, but we also have Host. So with horror, somebody proves something works, and then more and more people make their version of that. Some good, some bad. You know, you can you can go back to the origins of whatever idea and claim that this person wasn't original, they copied from that, and so on and so forth. But independent horror cinema does have a proven evolution of these little trends, these little kind of movements that we often talk about. And I would compare New French Extremity even to that and go, okay, this is a large number of people independent of each other that land on something similar. And it's not that one person proved with their little independent film that we could have this thing called New French Extremity and two years later another and two years later another. And it's not this blockbuster model of simultaneous developments. So where the fuck did all of these movies come from that were later circled 
and called, okay, there's new French extremity. And this is part of the conversation that I've been trying to kind of gear up to and see if we can, I don't know if we'll ever really get there, but that's certainly part of the interest. Part of that, I think, becomes an organic reading of whatever the fuck is in the air in France, you know, in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. So this is also like peak zeitgeist type reading sure. type material. And I know nothing of that because, you know, I was, yeah, one, right. I am American, <laughs> but two was like in middle school. Well, you know, it's funny, like I've been doing a lot of reading about France at that particular moment in time. And then also, you know, like reading about France's history and the turmoil. And there isn't a super clear like, oh, this person got elected and then all these movies came out. Or this, you know, like there were riots, that becomes part of the movies. There were protests in the street. But really, that is so part of France's culture that it's hard to even pin it on that. But I do think it's interesting. I mean, in the first one of these, Criminal Lovers and Marijuana, we talked about New French Extremity and what it isn't and discovered that it's a little more like Criminal Lovers and less like these horror movies. Mm-hmm. And then with Baisemois, we were able to talk about a film specifically on its own merit and dive deep into like, what are the themes, what's being discussed here, and see that, okay, well, it's independent French cinema and talking about such its own material that it's even based on a book. And yet it still fits into New French Extremity. So I thought it was time to start getting into a place where we're a little more comfortable on the show, which is the directors. So we've had a bunch of these now. And I don't exactly know where you're landing as we start to uncover a lot of these. But for me, I feel like French Extreme, if I wanted to make a director shorthand, Mm -hmm. what I'm kind of figuring out that these movies remind me a lot more of is, you know, films like I Stand Alone and Irreversible. Mm -hmm. If I just said to you, go make a French Extreme movie, the thing that would kind of, the the shorthand we could have is like, well, what would have happened in I Stand Alone? You know, Mm -hmm. and then you could go make your sort of like Michael's version of I Stand Alone or of Irreversible. And that would probably fall pretty good into what we've seen so far. But I think, you know, the genre itself is, it's what I'm going to call incidental. I don't know if that's really the the word for it, but it is, um, it's not planned. It's not part of an evolution. It is the results of just a moment where a lot of these came out. And I think you see that, especially with the directors in this kind of like French tradition of the auteur, where a lot of these directors are making their own films. So this would be my, my, my final piece of this little thesis that we've been building here. We started with a, a Francois' own film. And I know I had mentioned See the Sea on that show. That was uh, Criminal Lovers that we talked about. Mm-hmm. But look at the other stuff we were talking about. It's like young and beautiful summer of 85 eight women like the you think eight women could fall anywhere in the new french extremity you know <laughs> uh, what i mean probably like the, probably in the first two thirds of the genre yeah yeah it's like you'd really have to it it definitely has you know what's funny it's, about, it's i could see it being a new french film yeah a new french but not new french extreme <laughs> although there's yeah. parts of that movie that are quite extreme but you do see how when we saw Criminal Lovers that that dude could totally have made Criminal Lovers. Mm-hmm. Like there was no, you know, you talk about some of the bigger scenes that we remembered from that movie. And so it fits right into the other films he's doing. And in fact, his French Extremity movie feels in parts more like Eight Women than even some of the other, like try to compare it to Base Moi. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a different different experience. And what I found interesting as we started going through these different directors is we had done some films from a few of them or we knew the directors from other other places. We had done uh, Claire Denis' film Trouble Every Day. Mm-hmm. And you know, like, she basically never made another one of these. What would be like, a what's the biggest Claire Denis film? Oh, uh, High Life. Yeah, High Life. Uh, Bullet Survive was... Um, uh, here we are trying to avoid speaking French again. These aren't movies that really have a lot of the other tonal 
kind of characteristics of French Extreme and even Trouble Every Day. It's a movie very often associated with this this movement of people, but uh, or with this group of people. But it really seemed on the outskirts, you know, at the time we saw it. Mm-hmm. I think um, Bruno Dumont is the same. You know, he has the infamous Twenty Nine Palms. We'll get to uh, Humanity. You know, a lot of these people are making one movie that fits into this or two movies that fit into this and they're really doing their own thing and i think this starts to account for what we see with the horror directors later right because when we okay so now think about some people who we've really seen a lot of like um uh alex aja mm-hmm. alex aja is not made when we did crawl crawl's not a french extreme film no what is crawl? It's a it's a it's a biological monster movie. Yeah, it's like it means alligators in the in the hurricane. You could almost call it a monster movie if you wanted to yeah. really like amp it up, yeah. right? But it's a horror movie. Yeah. And so you know, I started with that first episode, kind of going, well, these are sort of not always horror movies, but I think what you're seeing is a lot of the later filmmakers are doing the same thing the earlier filmmakers are. You don't watch High Tension, the big French extreme movie that that broke into the United States, you don't watch that and go, oh, that's not a Alex Aja movie. Mm-hmm. You go, oh, that's fucking prototypical Alex Aja. And he would continue doing that over and over, but with movies that you wouldn't put in this genre. Like Horns? Like Horns, totally. <laughs> and Horns is, well, that's a movie that feels like, it feels brutal, it feels weird. There's a lot of the, some similar themes that he's fucking around with. I mean, I don't want to get too into these movies, but like, that's a perfect fucking example. And as we see his films over and over, they don't, we get this better understanding of who he is as a director, but it, it all makes sense drawing those together. Whereas trying to cram crawl into the new French extremity would be ridiculous. Right. And I think a lot of those horror guys, you know, uh, uh, Xavier Gahn, who did uh, Frontiers, worked in a lot of horror movies after that. Uh, Pascal Lugier, I think is how you uh, pronounce. It's my terrible pronounce. The guy did Martyrs, mm-hmm. right? You kind of like can't make another fucking movie like Martyrs, but right. some of those movies really feel like, yeah, they're... They're not repeating the exact same film, but they are definitely very much horror movies. All the things that they repeat, mm-hmm. I guess what I mean to say is that all the the repeating motifs and things you see again from the directors are things that feel in the Venn diagram similar to their French extreme movie, but not the other part of that Venn diagram sort of goes away. That's the smaller slice of it. Mm-hmm. You don't see, you see less and less French extreme type things in their movies. And a lot of them go on to make English language films. Right. So the reason that I wanted to get into the directors is because we also have a Leo Carax movie that we can now talk about in Pola X. And I think of all of these people, I mean, we have kind of like an inflated sense of importance over the horror directors because we see them all the time on our show. We watch a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think, and maybe it's also just the moment now with, um, what is it called, Annette? Oh, yeah. The Sparks film, as I keep calling it. This is one of the bigger names that dabbled in the new French extremity. And I think Pola X also fits like exactly in line with even the more, the, the more like Gaspar Noe part of it. Gaspar is probably actually the only name where like, if you wanted to make a case that every single one of that dude's movies were French extreme movies, then that would that would probably be okay. Mm-hmm. So Leo Leo actually got branded for another weird little movement that happened in France, which is called um, it's called like cinema de look or film de look. It basically means like fancy fucking overstylized movie, uh-huh. right? So it's like sure. kind of a derogatory, sure. It's uh, who else would be in that that people would know? It's like like Luke Besson, mm-hmm. right? Made the Fifth Element, uh, uh, Nikita. Like mm-hmm. a lot of these movies that when you look at Nikita as a French film, it's kind of funny because it's like yeah, you could see why they would say style over substance, even though mm-hmm. for an American film that would be like a little heavy on the substance, buddy. Maybe just shoot people <laughs> over. But they're not, it's not slick in exactly the same sense. Like Pola X isn't quite slick, but it is sort of budgeted and big and mm-hmm. epic in a way. Yeah. 
you know, like it reminds me, I don't know if you have a good, a good go-to for this, but it kind of reminds me of like, it definitely has a descent in it, which is interesting too. It starts with, it looks like the fucking English patient or something. Sure. I mean, listen, if you want to, if you want to keep it in the family, it's got a very Leon the Professional sort oh, yeah. of oh, like yeah, yeah, sentiment yeah. to it. Yeah, there's your Luke Besson right there. Yeah, and I think it it sort of uh, it slides back. You know, I'm thinking of the early stuff too. I'm thinking of the Princess Bride kind of stuff, the like on the hillside in France, mm-hmm. picturesque. You know, the dude goes from like Pierre. He's, this movie is so uh, under the radar funny. This guy goes from like his chateau to his girlfriend's family chateau mm-hmm. on his fucking motorbike too. Clock how many of those we see in the French extreme movies. Everybody like mm-hmm. always the scene of your your right. protagonist riding around on his uh, motorcycle. But yeah, so it's French country hillside, very scenic and also shot to look like fucking English patient. And then backslides into this like 12 monkeys, total garbage, chaos, you know, broken down warehouse. Like you can't step one frame into this movie without getting um, tetanus or something, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think compared to a lot of what we talk about as independent films, these might even, you know, some of these look very no budget, especially Base Moi that we just talked about. But, um, you know, this has uh, maybe not an epic look, but at least a very produced look. Even when it's grungy, it's like in a warehouse with 10,000 things going on. You know, it just appears to be a little bit bigger. The themes are what I think draws it directly to, I mean, definitely at least another one of of Leo's movies that I have in mind. You have this guy who is going through life very privileged until he meets this girl, Isabel, when suddenly he calls everything off, basically drops his current, high society life Mm -hmm. and then lives this like, I don't know, you call it a kind of transient lifestyle or something. Mm -hmm. He wants to become homeless, essentially. He's like, I'm going to go live in a warehouse with... Wants to be vagrant. Exactly, exactly. And he's convinced by this this long speech, which is very... The character of Isabel in this is like this whole movie for me. First of all, Isabel speaks like a, a broken French... And she was the first mm-hmm. person I ever heard in a French film where I could listen to it without subtitles and know what they're saying. Right. Which, like, when you're learning a language is a huge fucking accomplishment. But that's also depressing because, you know, like, everybody who talks about this movie talks about her terrible broken French. Mm-hmm. And I've started learning that I can just understand people speaking French very poorly, which yeah. probably means that's what I'm doing. But she has this scene with this like long five minute monologue, which itself is, I mean, mostly meaningless. You know, some of it's about the hardship of her life, but it's all based on this uh, Melville book, Pierre of the Ambiguities, right? Which is like where Pola X gets its name from. There's no translation from French for Pola X. It just stands for Pierre of the Ambiguities, La Ambiguities. Well, no, there is, there is, there is a translation. Because, yeah, then the X is, what, the 10th version of the script? I went on Wikipedia one time for this. <laughs> you know, it's it's fun. Like, I don't bring up a lot of the titles because the titles always have some fucking story. But And I always feel like I'm doing, like, an Alec Baldwin anecdote. Yeah. But the X, I also think it's funny because, like, Lee was called Mr. X, right? He's okay. got, there's, like, a documentary about him. It's a whole fucking thing. Sure. But you know what I like a lot about the X in the title is it makes it seem, like, really fucking lewd. You know? Oh, yeah. Like, you're going to totally. see, like, oh, pull an axe. That's got to be, like, the worst of the French extreme. What the fuck's going on in there? No, it definitely it definitely feels like it's going to be, like, a really, really... Raunchy. Really, like, raunchy exploitation yeah. movie or a goth club from 2002. Why can't we have both, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> well, you get a little bit of, of stuff that's that's pretty taboo in here. You know, you have, like, this, uh, this dubious sort of... Um, all the sex in the movie is very surprising and like the relationships, you know, his relationship with his mom throws me so much. No matter how many times I see this movie, I'm just sort of like, what the fuck? Because he, first of all, he dresses his mom as his sister. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, oh, they have a a cute young mom. So, you know, Catherine Deneuve, I mean, uh, icon of French cinema, Mm -hmm. but we talked about her in fucking donkey skin. I wouldn't be like, oh, well, cause they're the same age. That's definitely not the case. But just when you're like still trying to swallow the idea of they call each other brother, sister, 
he starts like massaging her in a really uncomfortable way. You know, there's like a really intimate touching there. Mm -hmm. And then later they're laying in bed together and talking about like their sex lives or how she's determined he's going to get married and she controls his entire life. Again, playing right back into the the theme, right back into the log line of this person who's kind of, um, you know, very appreciated by society, but with little of his own ability to control his destiny. And, you know, I think another thing that, that makes the movie personal to me is it's someone who's essentially rejecting being in a place where he does have value because it's hollow. You know, he doesn't want something. I, people who listen to our show know all my personal nonsense, but it's, you know, I mean, I worked in tech for a long time. It was very fulfilling. I was pretty good at it. People told me I was pretty good at it and it wasn't film and I left. And like, that's fucking hard. And I've also felt like I was living in the warehouse from Polo X, like kind of a lot, mm-hmm. where you're just, um, I don't know, this is very Leo too, is this romancing of transient lifestyle or this interest. He did a movie called Lovers on a Bridge. Very uh, famous French movie, uh, Juliette Benon. Benon is in it. I don't know how you pronounce her last name. Another like total French royalty, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In every goddamn French, there's a line you'll see, and all the French extreme directors yeah. all have like two movies with her, or, a, or you get a Catherine or a Juliet. But this is essentially a movie about two people who are homeless who live on this bridge and their struggles and like falling in love, but having a lot of uh, emotional or mental or really just like practical problems. And I think it come, you know, so when I saw this movie after seeing Lovers on a Bridge, I'm like, oh, peak Leo Crack stuff is, is this like interest in what it's like to have nothing but your freedom, ultimate freedom. And this is a movie that I think he did pretty, when he was pretty young. Uh, I'm pretty sure it comes out before Lovers on a Bridge. But he, it's beyond romanticism. Like, I think he finds hope in sort of this, um, this chaos, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's like coming out of, this guy has a, a pretty good situation. And then once he sees that, is it, once Isabel gives him this really just like from the gut, all of this awful stuff that's gone on in her own life. And he sees, okay, well, how how has there been such a schism? Like, how did I wind up here in the center of privilege and this person didn't and sort of mentally trying to parse how that even fucking works? And if anything guides his decision to just like burn it all down and start a new life, that's it. But it's also kind of a downward spiral movie because it's not it's not simply a movie of a guy who throws away everything and starts over and it's great. Mm-hmm. It's basically just chaos and destruction the entire time. And that's a really weird sort of narrative for a movie. Yeah. Right? It's like, hey, the moral of the movie is if you burn it all down, everything will have been on fire for a little while and then be ash. Like yeah. with yeah. like yeah. what yeah. a weird Right. Oh, okay. It's not, it's not so much an arc as it is just a fucking line that goes down. Yeah, right. Totally. <laughs> totally. But I think that there is a, a kind of, you know, another thing that I really identify with this, this movie and a lot of these French extreme movies is in this movie, life is about pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. And it's treated as a truth that either no one wants to embrace or, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm the only one who feels this way and is just surrounded by or constantly pulled back. A lot of it's depression. Mm -hmm. So it's constantly pulled back to misery. And to see Cracks kind of romanticize it or at least live in it, like he finds some like peace and joy returning to, you know, waking up to this like fucking weird chaos band that's living in the warehouse. Right. Is, uh, I don't know, this is the hardest thing to explain to anybody else about the new French extremity is I gravitate towards these movies because they give me some kind of weird comfort that somebody else also sees the world as just like super painful and meaningless and trying to just find fucking any meaning in it and having to constantly burn down everything that you had before because it was wrong. (laughs) Like that's, that's some bleak stuff, you know? 
But there are moments where it's not just joy, but it is like, okay, so let's let's go back to some of the sex in the movie. You know, he's also leaving what seems to be like a casual sort of happy, but uh, maybe stagnant relationship. And this is to help out Isabel and basically like take Isabel and the people who are with her off. And this is where he experienced a lot of the hardships of like, can't get a fucking hotel room and these kind of things. But it's also where, you know, we're getting into a lot of the, well, like we talked about with Basemois, a lot of the real sex that we saw, you know, in those movies, um, the film Romance coming out around the same time. There was even a, a English language French extreme movie called Intimacy that dealt a lot in this, once again, returning to real sex. And so this is another through line, I think, of the genre. But when you watch it in the movie, like it's it's cathartic because it's just so liberating. Mm-hmm. It's raw doesn't even seem like the right word. It's like carnal or something. Sure. And so it becomes about once you leave all of this artifice and pomp and all of this behind, you can connect directly to the emotion, directly to just like what biologically feels good and how that becomes how the movie accesses emotion in a really kind of fucking extreme way. So I'm seeing like French extreme connecting to, you know, extreme emotion, extreme sex, all of the sex in these movies where it's dull, it's very emotional, where it's aggressive, it's very emotional. Yeah, and so I, I won't say much else about the plot of this movie, but I have to pick out one of these scenes with Isabel because it is, it's maybe one of my favorite scenes in cinema, anything, and I still don't know what the fuck to make of it. But you know when they're on the fucking boat? <laughs> yeah. It's toward the end of the movie, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'll do this without spoiling anything, but like basically through the whole movie, there is this tension of who is being deceived. Because part of what I think causes the the downward spiral aspect is this guy does not have the skills that Isabel has from living in this life. And so he's still like, he's guided by whim, but he's uh, he's pretending to be one way in one room with one person, another way in another room with another person. And this changes again and again. And so he's kind of walking this increasingly, I don't know, vague line of like basically the the ambiguity and the double talk, the area where he can square what he's saying to these two women is diminishing more and more with each scene. Mm-hmm. And kind of like when he starts there and he's got a story and it's based on a lie, he can sort of like, if he sat down and had a family chat with everybody and went, okay, here's what's going on. There's sort of a way where everything he's saying could kind of line up in an honest way. But the longer he goes on, the more it's like, I don't know what you're doing. Like, I'm running out of room to, to say you're an honest actor in any way. And so Isabel's picking up on this. But there is, for all her sort of uh, willingness to just go along with him, give him like this trust that he hasn't earned at all, which is a interesting part, the archetypes of these characters and like what they're like. She's gone through a lot of, a lot of really awful stuff. And she's just decided, like, this guy's going with me. I'm going to give him my, um, what's the what's the term, for the phrase for, like, the way a dog loves you? Unconditional? Uncond- yeah, thank you. Like, unconditional trust at the very least. Yeah. And even when it's becoming more and more obvious that she's, like, that he's not being honest with her. But then there's this fucking scene. The movie's kind of made us guess our trust in her through this whole, whole film. Mm-hmm. But then there's the scene where he picks up the book. And shows it to her, and he has this moment of like, oh, fuck. I don't like the way you're reacting to this. I don't know. Maybe your story's not lining up. And the very next scene on the boat just kills me because there is this, she's staring at the water, and she's talking about like fucking corpses and just like heavy, oh, the corpses down there, maybe those are my friends. And Lucy, are you my friend? But she says this thing here in the secret of your heart are you my friend? She says that to Pierre, which fuck man, though, like for all the stuff in the French language that like, I love the language because it has this way of just cutting to like stuff we don't even talk about here. But the purity of just, you you have a casual relationship with someone or you basically want to know like, hey, are you a fair weather friend? Are you like really my, like would you really have my back? Right. 
And the way she just, you know, in the secret of your heart, are you actually my friend? And then she's so distraught over it. Her performance is like peak melodramatic, really over the top in the tone of her voice. And that kind of desperation, which probably just reads as ridiculous for most people, but it like, it, it fucking makes me emotional when I see it. I feel like, yeah, that, that thing, you know, this is part of like working in the film industry, right? As you have a lot of fair weather friends, you have a lot of right. sure. people I mean, around. just a part of adulthood at this point. Totally, totally. <laughs> but maybe more than ever, I mean, I've never had this many people in my life. Yeah. Because you're constantly like, okay, this person and I have some sort of symbiotic relationship where they give me work and I give them product, but they don't pay me much. And right. And as a person with depression, I go to bed wondering, like, do any of these people fucking care about me? Right. If I'm my funeral tomorrow, like, who would show up to this? And so that moment of, you know, here in the secret of your heart, are you my friend? I'm just like, damn, Leo, that's a fucking line. <laughs> All right, whatever. The, uh, this end of end of overlong pretentious. Uh, no, I just I do want to make a, a hilarious note that you're like love this French extreme movie about this guy who might be uh, ruining his own life to fuck his biological sister. But I'm not so sure about that black vampire. <laughs> we have a website. It's doublefeature.fm. We we tapped on it earlier. Patreon.com forward slash doublefeature. If you really like this journey, I really like this. Tell you what, do me a favor this week. Go to the Patreon and keep this journey alive for me. I will. Not for you. I will. For me. Because we've still got four more of these um, or something. Three more. I don't we know. Get a lot I don't know more. where we are. Part of it we was I wanted to smush Pola X on the show, even though we didn't right. have time for it. So here we go. Well, you got Blackula for that. And a joy. And a joy it was to watch <laughs> Blackula. Big thanks to Charles Crawford, Ben Ecker, Brad Parker, and Joachim Vernon, by the way, for being executive producers on patreon.com forward slash double feature. Next week is our punchline to last month's uh, running joke. Oh, the thing I promised and never paid off. That was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In October, we did four thematic shows. And I was like, oh, we're doing a cool thing. And then just never. It's a dramatic pause. So our our final conclusion to something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue is creepy wedding movies, kind of like horror murder weddings or some shit. We're going to do Death Becomes Her, which I'm thrilled about. We're going to do So I Married an Axe Murderer, which I'm thrilled about. Just come back next time. Watch those movies, then come back, and then watch more fucking film. All right, bye.